you must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. Or was it? Ice pick. I'd like to speak to Miss Catherine Jermel, please. Is she a suspect? She's a suspect. I wanted to write a book about the murder of a retired rock and roll star. You know how she does the boyfriend? With an ice pick. She intended the book to be her alibi. I picked him up and I had sex with him. You didn't feel anything for him, you just had sex with him for your book. In the beginning. Then I got to like what he did for me. You like playing games, don't you? It's nice. Hello, this is Annie Rose Malamet, and you're listening to Girls, Guts, and Jalo. I'm here today with my friend Sarah Patterson. We've just watched Basic Instinct, uh, starring Sharon Stone and Michael Douglas, directed by Paul Verhoeven from 1992. Sarah, before we talk about the movie, would you like to introduce yourself and say a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, hi. Um, let's see. It's kind of hard to think about much else after watching Basic Instinct. Um, I'm a dyke who's obsessed with femme fatale films, particularly films from this era. So it's very fitting that we're doing this movie. I feel like it was a hugely formative movie for me. Um, I'm a former sex worker. Uh, I do work in social justice and uh, I live in the Bay where the film is shot. So we're very topical. So we are recording in Sarah's room with her dog lady. (laughs) Um, So you might hear some ambient dog sounds in the background, (laughs) but lady, no, she's pretty good. She's pretty quiet. I think she'll be fine. So Like we said, we've just watched Basic Instinct, and it is both uh, one of our favorite movies, so I'm really excited to talk (laughs) about it. We were going to do Body Heat um, from 1981, starring Kathleen Turner, but it was so boring. So boring. (laughs) That I decided we should maybe just talk about it as a precursor to Basic Instinct and, and give it give the conversation more of a context with that film. So like I said, this movie was directed by Paul Verhoeven, who's a Dutch director. He bought the script from Joe Esterhaas. And apparently there was a bidding war for the script. (laughs) Joe Esterhaas and Paul Verhoeven would work again together on the infamous Showgirls. So Basic Instinct was extremely successful. It was one of the highest grossing films of 1992 and I believe of the 90s period. So they thought they could recreate that success with Showgirls. They did it in my eyes, but I mean, <laughs> but not <laughs> but not in the eyes of the critics cuz where is this film? Well, this film kind of received some mixed reviews, but generally positive. I think the score was nominated for an Oscar for best best score, um, but it did not 
showgirls did not enjoy the success that Basic Instinct did. So, Sarah, when did you first see this movie? Well, when we were looking back on this, I realized I would have been eight years old when this movie came out, which makes a lot of sense to me because I recall watching it at either like pre-tween tween time because it was such it had such a profound impact on me. I was just so obsessed with it. And then also when we were looking more deeply into it, realizing how many other films like it had come out at exactly around the same time. And then it all started to make a little bit more sense of the psychosexual thrillers that came out in 1992. We have single white female, Mm -hmm. the hand that rocks the cradle body of evidence, the terrible Madonna movie where she plays a dominatrix. Right. Again, sort of like body heat, conceptually a great idea. <laughs> the execution of the film, not That's that great. That's so good. Yeah. And then what else? But there were like a few more. Final analysis also came out in 92, but there was like a, a kind of a glut of these movies. So maybe not necessarily Basic Instinct was in 1992, and that kind of set off the craze. Mm-hmm. But before that, there was Fatal Attraction, which also had Michael Douglas, mm-hmm. and Body Double, Body Heat, and Dress to Kill. Dress to Kill, yeah. Yeah. And then after Basic Instinct, we have movies like Boxing Helena. Totally in the same right. universe. Yeah. And Indecent Proposal. Uh, and Disclosure. Disclosure. Um, Sharon Stone was in a movie called Sliver. Which, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where she had a, a number of sex scenes. Um, the Crush with Alicia Silverstone can't came forget, out. Can't forget, can't forget that. Or Fear. Fear, 96. Fear and, and Crush and Cruel Intentions, which is 99. We're sort of like the teenage version. Yeah, it tipped it into stories. the teen years. Yeah, the yeah, they were trying to tap into that like teen craze yeah. at that time. Because let's be honest, everyone in this film is quite old, comparatively <laughs> speaking. Well, I was just reading that a, a critic who opposed <laughs> Basic Instinct says that the movie is a darkly phobic lust story. Uh, Basic Instinct pits a tanned and greased Michael <laughs> Douglas against a suspected man killer, played with Amazonian disdain by an unforgettable Sharon Stone. And he is quite tanned and creased in this movie. He was 47 when they filmed it, and he's supposed to be 42 in the movie. And let's not forget that he got a facelift, right? Before the movie yeah, was filmed, <laughs> and it's still that face is still made of yeah. buddy. It is <laughs> yes, a human Sarah, buddy about to melt all yeah, over Sarah everything kept in the saying movie? Yeah, his face was melting onto Jared, so. <laughs> and his age is sort of um, pretty glaring in this movie, especially the glove scene that happens. But um, I feel like that's very reminiscent of like when we were watching the movie, we were talking about this like late eighties, early nineties. Is that period in which like well number one like right pre the like teen craze pre-scream movies pre like everything getting focused back on teenagers and youth and like yeah I mean people looked Michael Douglas looks fucking old because he's fucking old in the movie (laughs) you know what I mean but that was like fine at the time yeah well and some of the trivia too that we were reading said that the (laughs) audience laughed at Michael Douglas's sagging buttocks when he gets up 
from the bed after having sex with Catherine Dramel. We really have to assume that he insisted upon that ass shot. <laughs> it's, it, it does suggest, the way that it's shot suggests to me that he insisted <laughs> upon it. He also had a clause in his contract that he wouldn't do public nudity. Public nudity. That he wouldn't do full frontal nudity. Right. Um, but he also was adamant about there being sex scenes because he felt that sex scenes were disappearing from films because of the AIDS epidemic. I have to imagine that there was a lot of puritanical stuff going on sure. at this time because of the AIDS epidemic. And we're sort of just getting out of that in 1992. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't really make sense to be the hill that Michael Douglas will die on. But, you know, whatever. I mean, I, it's one that suits him because he wants to have more sex scenes i mean he made so many movies like those i know i know <laughs> but uh funnily enough he turned down basic instinct too because he thought he was too old to be in that role anymore i don't disagree with him <laughs> <laughs> so at least there's that sharon stone can do it forever but michael douglas needs to yeah. age out at some point yeah. <laughs> He may have also just gotten over his fantasy of being murdered by women because I do often wonder about Michael Douglas was whether he spent the 90s just like obsessing over whether a woman would murder him since he literally made like half a dozen movies about that topic. So yeah, maybe he got over it. Yeah, maybe he was like, that's I've explored this particular right, part of my right. psyche. I can move on. So something I wanted to talk about before we get into the plot was just like some of the background and trivia around the film. Uh, to put it in a historical context, gay rights groups hated this film or they hated even just the concept of it. There were protests during the filming, um, to be exact, like 13 protests, I believe I read. Amazing. 25 demonstrators were arrested for violating a restraining order obtained by filmmakers. But Mr. Esterhaas, Joe Esterhaas, actually agreed to revise the script. He said the people I met when he met with gay rights activists, he said the people I met were intelligent, articulate, and sensitive. I felt that the things they were saying made a great deal of sense. So there wasn't like a total disregard of the things that the gay rights activists were saying. Mr. Esterhaas said he had written numerous scenes, rewritten numerous scenes and recast a part to reflect the sensitivities expressed by the gay community leaders. In my mind, he said, these are changes that are very important in the perception of gay people and women in our society. He said the changes did not affect the dramatic structure or plotting of the story. But then his changes that he requested were actually rejected. And he said that um, they were making a serious mistake for rejecting his changes. So none of his sort of um, more enlightened epiphanies are in the final movie. He said it's not a negative depiction or Verhoeven said it is not a negative depiction of lesbians and bisexuals. He also said that Mr. Esterhaas changes had undermined the strength of the original material weaken the characters, which he so vividly portrayed, and lessen the integrity of the picture itself. Gay rights activists at the time felt that the depiction of a bisexual woman as a murderous psychopath was really damaging to the mainstream image of bisexual women, and they felt that the lesbian character, Roxy, is also a really damaging stereotype of 
an obsessive kind of stalker. And all of these stereotypes about queer women have a really long history dating back into like the 30s where women were queer coded in film as kind of psychopathic murderous stalkers. Maybe the most prominent example being a character in Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca. Yeah, I always think of Marlene Dietrich's role in The Blue Angel. Yeah, you want to talk a little bit about how she's portrayed in that? I mean, I wouldn't say it's not an explicitly bisexual character, but she's very much presented as sort of like she would go for anyone type of person. But the essentially the plotline of the film is that she meets a professor in a college town while she's performing cabaret and seduces him and like ruins his life and the last shot of the film is like him in a clown costume and it's like yeah like he she's completely humiliated this man to the point of him his life being ruined yeah it sounds a lot like basic instinct (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah so as dykes obviously we're very sensitive to the fact that (laughs) gay rights groups protested this movie and i i get where they're coming from totally um however i love this movie absolutely love it so that is something that i've reckoned with i'm just someone who always is kind of drawn to quote-unquote problematic representations that's why kind of why i wanted to start this podcast definitely and why i thought it would be interesting to talk to you about it because I know that you should kind of share that sensibility. Everybody in this movie sucks. Right. <laughs> Not just the queer people. But you were also saying like some of us are murderous, <laughs> like <laughs> bloodthirsty bitches. And I mean that's valid, like not in a literal sense, but Yes, of course. Like Catherine Tremell is an icon. Like she's a queer icon. And I don't know. I mean, I just find her character so fascinating. And I also find it fascinating that Esther Haas had made an attempt to make the film a little bit more sensitive. Like that's, that actually really surprised me. Yeah, That kind of shows me that he wasn't that often we kind of paint people into these boxes as of like, you're an awful shitty misogynist and like, you know, you're portraying your women characters in this horrible way, but it seems like he wasn't actually that bad of a person. <laughs> Isn't that bad of a person. Yeah. Um, maybe did have some kind of like sensitivity to these issues and felt, he said he felt genuinely bad that people felt bad about the way that he depicted queer women. Totally. I mean, he talked to them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. That's more than a lot of people do. I mean, and I also, there's something about the film for me that I feel like it does really represent for me a time period and attention. Like there is this question of like, like that was the early nineties was such a misogynist period. And it does capture that. And Michael Douglas is clearly a misogynist and he's clearly a shitbag in the movie too. So it's sort of like, right. The concept again, that everybody's bad in it. Sure. But then also like, 
just this, I, I, the thing that it always makes me ponder is like, th- is this the sort of eternal struggle between men and women that like this surviving a man's world means being a murderous, evil dyke bitch. And like, for many of us, that is still a like reality in which we live. Yeah, I'm very interested in this idea of, and I always have been, of men unintentionally making like great lesbian characters exactly yeah Yeah. and you know taking them back for us and I you know growing up I had a hard time coming to my sexuality I think because a lot of the media depictions I saw that I was supposed that I knew I was supposed to resonate with that were like these positive representations were these kind of like wholesome granola lesbians that I just, you know, God love them, but I just like don't relate to. That's just not me. Absolutely not. And then, so my, my real like first exposure to queerness that I identified with was drag culture and gay men's culture because I'm femme and I love all things campy and femme. Yeah, yeah. So you know, Priscilla Queen of the Desert, all of these movies, that's how I sort of came into queer culture. And then later would see things like Basic Instinct with Catherine Trammell and would identify with characters like that, even though I kind of later learned that these were characters that were not seen favorably by feminist critics except for our friend Camille Bagley. <laughs> <laughs> so good old Cammy. Yeah. <laughs> so Camille Bagley Camille Bagley loves this movie. Um she, the one thing we have in common with her. <laughs> right. She did the commentary track for a DVD release which I haven't gotten my hands on yet, but please, someone, please, if us. you're listening out there and somebody has the Blu-ray or DVD of Basic Instinct with the Camille Paglia track, please rip it for us. And I <laughs> need to hear it desperately. <laughs> yeah, I desperately need to hear it. Um, I hear she just like shouts her just words over desire, desire sex, passion. passion. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would pay money even to, to listen to that. One thing we found out that was interesting about this was that Michael Douglas's role of Nick Curran was originally supposed to be a lesbian cop played by Kathleen Turner. That is so wild to me. Kathleen Turner from Body Heat, a, a, almost exactly a decade later from the filming of Body Heat, in hypothetically in this movie about yeah. a lesbian cop. And I assume then a murderous bisexual who seduces her. Like, can you even imagine? Right. I mean, how much... The movie is already great, but how much better would it have been if that was the plot? If Putty Face wasn't in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would certainly be very different. Very different. Because um, <laughs> it's basically an extended castration fear, <laughs> this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you have Michael Douglas as the central character. And there's a lot of moments that, like, Sarah had pointed out when we were watching it, of men, groups of men talking about the women in the film and kind of trying to figure out how to deal with them. And... I'm being very frustrated. I'm being very frustrated, <laughs> yeah. It, but the, the love triangle is between Michael Douglas, um, Gene Triplehorn... And Sharon Stone, 
But imagine if the love triangle had been between Kathleen Turner, Sharon Stone, and Dream Triple Horn. Oh it just would have been a completely different movie that I can't even really imagine. Who would have worn neutrals best? <laughs> it would have been a real <laughs> face-off. Um, some other actresses. Who were some of the other actresses that were considered for the, for, for the role? Oh my gosh, there were a ton. Julia Roberts, which is weird. Um, gosh, the list was very extensive. It felt like it was half of Hollywood, to be totally honest with you. It was like every actress that was really working at that time. Melanie Griffith, Ellen Barkin, Demi Moore. Verhoeven at first really wanted Demi Moore. Michael Douglas really wanted Demi Moore, too, because he thought that he they needed another big name to carry the film. And Sharon Stone at the time was kind of an... She wasn't like an unknown, but she had just been in like Total Recall and wasn't a huge part or anything no so she wasn't a big star some of the other actors that were considered were denzel washington interestingly enough and wesley snipes and they both turned it down and who else alec baldwin i think even i think brad pitt was brad pitt which seems like very young brad pitt yeah martin sheen all those guys and apparently Michael Douglas's character, Nick Curran, was originally supposed to be bisexual. That could have been kind of a leftover from when Kathleen Turner was supposed to be the main character. But that would have been another interesting element if we had a bisexual man and a bisexual woman as the two main characters of the story. I mean, that changes so much, possibly everything about some of the critiques. I mean, it doesn't, it wouldn't make a ton of logical sense in terms of the misogyny then. Well, I just, I feel like it would have been interesting because it is, as it is, um, Catherine Trammell and Nick Curran are kind of like mirroring each other, like are kind of almost doppelganger characters, except for like some very crucial things. If they, if their sexuality had also been mirrored, it would have been like an even more intense comparison. That's very true. One of the main points of disagreement between Paul Verhoeven and Joe Esterhaz concerned Verhoeven's wish to include a lesbian love scene between Catherine Tremell and her lover, Roxy. As he considered a movie that only mentioned bisexuality without showing bisexual love to be puritanical. Esterhaz considered adding such a scene to be sensationalism. Verhoeven made some attempts but found that the scene ruined the movie's pace, so they abandoned the idea. I mean, I feel very ambivalently about that. On the one hand, I kind of love that all of the lesbian relationships in the film are off screen, so to speak. It's like really enforces this idea of like secret dyke society in the film. I mean, Catherine Schmel has a ton of creepy, intimate dyke relationships it's not just with roxy which is realistic (laughs) right exactly (laughs) i'm like very that's very accurate very real to life um so there's roxy the relationship that does get like the most screen time in terms of they make out in front of michael douglas and i as i pointed out to you while we were watching it she has a little like nipple poke with her thumb in that part which I really love and then the hypothetical relationship that's happened between Gene Triplehorn and Catherine Trammell or Sharon Stone's character from college and then also this hot mommy character that's like this 
older woman that she's friends with who hangs out at her house a bunch and it's always like looking really hot and glaring at Michael Douglas's character. Yeah. <laughs> it's all yeah, pretty no, great. I, I feel you. Like I feel I actually kind of maybe agree with Esther House a little bit there. It would have sensationalized it a little bit. Yeah. Although I would have loved to see that, of course. Um, what else? I mean, I almost don't trust them with it. Like I kind of prefer it's not there because I feel like any sex scene that would be put in a film from that time by men would be stupid and I would get irritated by. Like, that's my fear is I'm going to be like, this is not a lesbian sex scene. Yeah, I mean, that's real. Yeah, it's almost like, don't even touch yeah, it. Yeah, just leave it. Yeah. Uh, Nick Curran is based on an adrenaline junkie Cleveland police officer that Joe Esterhaus knew when he was a crime reporter with the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Oh, uh, Sharon Stone said she actually m- referenced Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity and Kathleen Turner in Body Heat. And Body Heat is actually like a loose remake of Double Indemnity. So oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so that makes sense. And there are so many, I mean, we found so many visual aspects to compare between those films. In each film, the the man who's going to get his life ruined drives a red convertible so both michael douglas's character and um ned racine the character from body heat both drive a red car the women both drive white cars there's like white satin in both of the films and basic instinct it's a white satin scarf and in body heat it's white satin sheets um there's as we talked about before, there's a lot of neutrals. So many neutrals. So many neutrals. The color palette is very <laughs> neutral in <laughs> these movies. So now that we've given some background, we can just start talking about the plot and kind of like analyzing our favorite scenes. Perfect. Um, so the film opens, as Sarah, you noted when it opened, with these geometric shapes uh cutouts cutouts <laughs> and there's maybe some like body parts behind them and then it morphs nude into neutral nudes and neutrals <laughs> and then it morphs into this sex scene where we see this blonde woman riding this guy on a very ornate bed and she takes out a white silk scarf and she ties him to the bed and then she stabs him really violently with an ice pick um Oh, and one of the, some of the signs that the gay protesters had outside <laughs> filming uh, said, suck my ice pick. I'm so into it. <laughs> Which is great. Um, oh, and apparently also there hadn't been that much um, gay ire and protest around a movie since Cruising with Al Pacino. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm just thinking about the fisting scene in Cruising. Oh Thank you. my god. Yeah, no, that, was, that was great. Cruising. <laughs> okay, then we see the cops coming to this house. This is when we meet Michael Douglas, Nick Curran. We meet some other characters like Nilsson and Moran. I, to be honest, like I don't really give a fuck about the male characters. There's but... so many of them. <laughs> so many of them. Um, they find this guy, Johnny Boz, who's used to be a rocker <laughs> and is now a millionaire. 
They find his body. Uh, we see his flaccid penis. Though this is another thing. Paul Verhoeven <laughs> desperately wanted to be the first director to have an erect penis in a major Hollywood film. But he did not get his wish. We only get the flaccid penis in the first scene. Um, I mean, it seems more on brand for a castration fantasy for me. But, you know. Yeah. No, that makes you have sense. an ice pick. That yeah. is an erect penis. The, there you go. Oh, my God. Brown. Yes. I mean, Hello. the ice pick is so phallic. Yeah. So it's already kind of in the beginning, this role reversal where this blonde woman is like topping this guy. And then jamming her dick in his neck, like <laughs> literally in his neck, um, through his nose, and through his nose. Which fun fact, they use the prosthetic head to do that scene. And they also find the body next to a bunch of lines of coke. So this is another theme that we're going to see again and again of substance abuse and addiction. So that's already set up in the beginning. There, this is when. Moran and Nick go to Catherine Trammell's house. This is the first time that we see Roxy. I think it's worth mentioning that Roxy is always in black. Roxy is always in black and Catherine is always in white. The actress's name is Leilani Sorrell. Okay, I've never heard of her name before. No. So they meet Roxy. Then now they go to Catherine Trammell's country house or whatever and this is the first time we see Sharon Stone and she's sitting on like a lounge chair smoking looking out into the ocean wearing a giant sweater wearing a giant tan sweater the, the kind of sweater you wear when you're hibernating after murdering somebody yeah she's you're just like taking a day off yeah she needs a day off um what do you notice first about Catherine this is the first time we see her what do you notice immediately about her in this scene Oh, besides the big sweater, the- <laughs> we're moving off of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, gosh, I mean, I'm mostly I'm fascinated by the way that Sharon Stone moves her eyes and her face in this movie. It's really like intense. Um, and the yeah, the way that there's one part where he asks her. I forget what he asked her, but some type of instigating question. And she just sort of, like, smiles. Like, there's a lot of smiling. Right. And this is also when we see that she's, like, a straight shooter. She's really Oh, yeah. Blonde. She cruises immediately. Yeah. And straightforward. And uh, what does she say? Oh, they're like, he, was he your boyfriend? And she's like, no, I was just fucking him. And the dudes are, like, shocked that she's so blonde. And then, like, you know, slipping in a hooker joke of, like, the other cop is, like, what are you, a pro? And she says, no, I'm an amateur. Right. Oh, they ask, are you sorry that Johnny Boz is dead? And she says, yeah, because I liked fucking him. Let me ask you something, Mr. Mill. Are you sorry he's dead? Yeah. I liked fucking him. Icon. And then she also tells them if they're not going to arrest her to get the fuck out, which, you know, valid. Yeah, there's this push on the part of Michael Douglas's character to try and interrogate whether she is like a cold, heartless bitch for not caring that this dude is dead. Right. But as we'll see, that's extremely hypocritical because these dudes talk about women in the same way when they're alone with each other, but they're horrified that she's 
you know, kind of got this power that she doesn't care. So this is the next scene. Michael Douglas, Nick Curran, goes to see his therapist, Elizabeth Garner, his court-mandated <laughs> therapist. And who is always in brown. Who's always in brown and has, she's really sexy. She's super hot. Jean Triple yeah, Horn. Triple yeah. Horn yeah. Right. Looking fucking great. Yeah. Um, and we find out that he needs to be seeing this therapist for some mysterious reason having to do with an incident at his his job as a cop um and also that he has a romantic relationship with elizabeth garner so we who goes by beth Mm -hmm. so we get that too oh and then he's only been not drinking for a few months Mm -hmm. and just recently quit smoking so we have it underscored by this point in the movie that he has issues with addiction and that he may or may not have murdered multiple people already right also that he's fucking his therapist right and beth is lady the dog is (laughs) she's trying to get comfortable Beth is kind of like this helicopter kind of castrating figure. Mm-hmm. I mean, she controls him. I mean, she he has to see her. It's, I think, and you know, I'm kind of also having thoughts. There is, uh, you know, trigger warning. There is a rape scene in this movie. Um, and I'm having some thoughts about... Beth almost keeping Michael Douglas in therapy to have access to him. Oh, I mean, they both need to read Codependent No More, like, <laughs> immediately. Yeah, they're, they're in an abusive, codependent relationship. Yeah, I mean, she, like, we'll see throughout the film, she, fab- she basically fabricates reasons to continue to try and like include herself in saving this man who is not worth saving whatsoever and who in multiple scenes like physically pushes her there's a rape scene like it is 100 an abusive relationship between those two not good it really is and we also find out that Catherine Trammell has a degree in literature and psychology she's filthy rich she's a crime writer and she's written a novel about the murder. So she's written a novel where a, an aging rock star gets murdered with an ice pick. So, <laughs> <laughs> which is what's just happened. A therapist, another psychologist comes in to consult on the murder. And he says that if Catherine is the murderer, then she's an evil genius, basically. Nick and Moran go back to... Catherine Trammell's mansion, Mm -hmm. tell her that she has to come downtown. This when things really start to get interesting. Um, Nick finds an article on Catherine's table about a shooting that we kind of guess has to do with him. It's an old article. And he says, you know, do you typically keep old newspaper articles around? And she says, only when they're interesting. And then she purposely gets changed in front of an open door yeah, and Nick watches as she changes into her iconic white dress. So this starts this extended sequence where they then go into the car, and Catherine is taunting Nick 
She keeps offering him cigarettes. He keeps saying he's quit smoking. She's like, oh, it's not going to last. <laughs> so <laughs> she's really playing, fucking with his head at this point already. Pulls cigarettes out herself. And then he's like, oh, I thought you wanted wanted a cigarette. And she's like, oh, I just found these. Thought you didn't have any cigarettes. Oh, I found some in my pocket. Would you like one? I told you I quit. It won't last. I kind of had the thought here in this car scene that Catherine is almost kind of purposely mimicking the role of this like creepy predatory man. Like this is something that a weird man would do to a woman in a situation like this. This is the scene, the famous scene where we see Sharon Stone's bare vulva. Um, she's sitting in an interrogation room. Oh, it looks so sweaty in there. <laughs> like it, the men are sweating. The men are sweating. She's poised as shit. She's but the poised. Men are very she's sweaty. in this iconic white outfit, mock turtleneck dress with like a white coat, naked bare legs, naked bare pumps. legs, pumps, no underwear, no underwear, no underwear, no bra. And she's sitting in the middle of the room and all of these sweaty, gross men are sitting around. Too. In hideous, neutral colors. <laughs> interrogating her. And she's as cool as a cucumber. And this is also the scene where the way that Catherine Trumel speaks is really interesting to me. I mean, she can just make any sentence sound sexy. And she's also just like really straightforward and blunt. like. When they ask, did you, did you ever tie him up? And she's like, no, Johnny liked to use his hands and fingers. I like hands and fingers. <laughs> I had sex with him for about a year and a half. I liked having sex with him. He wasn't afraid of experimenting. I like men like that. Men who give me pleasure. He gave me a lot of pleasure. You ever uh, engage in any sadomasochistic activity? Exactly what did you have in mind, Mr. Corelli? You ever tie him up? No. You never tied him up? No. Johnny liked to use his hands too much. I like hands and fingers. I like hands and fingers is not a sentence that most people can pull off saying without sounding insane. <laughs> yeah, she is just so sexy in the scene. I mean, there's a reason that this scene is iconic. Um, and she's just like playing a game with them. Sharon Stone said in an interview in Playboy about this scene that she wanted it to be like Catherine Trammell was playing a mind game with these guys. And they're sweating... They can't handle it. They're all like rock hard. <laughs> and so much lick licking or lip licking, yeah, rather. So much lip licking, which, you know, honestly, like as a woman, this is not that far off of an experience, which is why I'm hesitant to write it off as like misogynist right. drivel, because this actually captures that experience really well, <laughs> where you feel you're the only woman in a room and you feel like all these dudes eyes on you 
but it's actually, you know, at the risk of sounding a little precious, it's actually like kind of empowering because I never feel like I'm in power in that situation. And that's exactly what I was talking about before with this like eternal struggle between men and women, this concept of like, if you have to live in a world, like she's in a room dominated by men. And so she's using what she has to perform within that space. And it feels like very much, that feels like such a root of female sexuality in a misogynist society. It's like what you have to do. Yeah, absolutely. She knows what she has to do in the situation, like you said. And this is when Catherine uncrosses and crosses her legs again, and we see her vulva, um, which is honestly, like, pretty shocking. Like, we still don't see that. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is one of the only films I can think of where you, like, see a vagina, like, in any real way. I'm not sure which parts of this are true and which aren't. There seems to be some suggestion that that Stone didn't want it in the film and didn't know that it was going to be in the film. And then she claims that when she found out that it was in the film, she slapped Paul Verhoeven across the face, which may or may not have happened. And Verhoeven claims that she only got, that she was fine with it initially, but then her agent tried to get it taken out. And then that's when people were mad. I mean, unclear. I don't know. Yeah, it's unclear. I mean, the I think, like, the instinct is to sort of write the scene off as disgusting because if Sharon Stone didn't consent to that, yeah, that is it's disgusting. That's yeah. really fucked up. Do you feel like it's necessary? I really, I really like the fact that it's sort of it feels like a slap in the face to every man in this room. Like, it feels like a mockery of them in some way. And that does, yeah, again, not to sound precious about it, but it does feel empowering. It does feel like in the way that she sits, in the way that she talks, in the way that she presents herself in the scene, she's like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. It just feels like a really big fuck you. Like, here's my pussy, you can't have it. Fuck yourself. Right, and I think that a lot of, like... I can see where the criticism of this would come in. Like what woman would really do this in that situation. At the same time, film is a fantasy space and it exists for us to play out like our deepest fantasies and desires. And if I could do that and not fear like retaliation, would I? Yeah. A hundred (laughs) percent. Like men you know, cis men are constantly, like, throwing phallic imagery in our faces. So to have, like, your vagina, like, just out <laughs> as a way of saying fuck you is pretty amazing. I mean, the idea of it is pretty amazing. But, you know, there's this idea of, like, just because we have fantasies about things doesn't mean, like, we would actually want to do them. And... I think, like, it's okay to have film just be a fantasy space. Yeah, and it does, that makes me think about, like, it's a troubling notion overall, and I wonder if it's misogynist or if it's just kind of a reality of living in a misogynist world. Like, the only women in this film who are harmed are Jean Triplehorn when Michael Douglas's character rapes her, 
And then Roxy, because of some act she does out of love, which we'll get to later, but like nothing happens to Sharon. Like Sharon Stone is not hypothetically harmed throughout the, like nothing harmful hypothetically happens to her. She's above it the whole time. Yeah. I mean, she always gets the last laugh. I guess that the argument you could make is that she's really just like a vehicle for some kind of male fantasy. But at the same time, like I do relate to her and would 100% want to be her. I mean, she's like living the life. Right. (laughs) I mean, and like, again, like you think about it from a sex work angle, like, yes, totally. Right. The The dominatrix as a figure, that's a figure, that's a male fantasy about a woman being fully in control in which a woman is and we know from reality within sex work that like a woman is not actually in control in that situation because a man it transactionally like <laughs> that's not a word <laughs> transactionally makes it possible like the money is what makes it possible it's the man's money and so therefore like he's the one in control whenever but that eternal struggle like Sharon Stone exhibits the most freedom that one can have within that paradigm. Yeah, exactly. You really put it very succinctly. (laughs) That's exactly it. Oh, and Catherine is also toying with Nick during the interrogation. Like she's mentioning his wife. Oh yeah. Shooting that he was involved with. Um, Keeps offering him cigarettes, which I think is honestly supposed to poke at his addiction oh totally um yeah i think she sees it as like a domino effect of like start smoking again start drinking again start murdering people again maybe (laughs) she wants to destroy him um catherine offers to take a lie detector she passes it so nick takes catherine home and he says oh must have you must have worked up a sweat trying to beat the lie detector and she said it's not hard to beat a polygraph even if i was lying i could do it um and she also taunts him again about passing a polygraph after his shooting incident uh very romantic right (laughs) and then he drops her off she takes off her shoes and like runs barefoot in the rain to her house (laughs) her mansion is like a roman orgy palace oh yeah yeah. Like 100%. Like she is the definition of excess. Nick goes to a, a bar. He's pissed off <laughs> that Catherine passed the polygraph test and he starts drinking again. So she's already like driven him. Doubles, doubles of whiskey or bourbon. Or right. Like that. Right. Beth Blackjack. shows up. Right. Beth shows up to the bar. Everyone's calling him shooter, <laughs> referencing his shooting crime. Um, and Beth and Nick leave together, and this is when uh, Nick is, he's so turned on by his interaction with Catherine, and also angry at her, that he takes it out on Beth, and he descends on her, and he rapes her. And it's really disturbing. And But then at the end of the rape, Beth is like, I don't want to say like, oh, she ends up liking it, but... I think that they're just so codependent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're that, yeah. codependency. Yeah, yeah. Totally. That, you know, she's like sucking on his fingers afterwards and like laying oh. with him naked and, and talking. <laughs> 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 
Uh, and I, I did want to like, so this is one of the interrogation scene is the first major scene that I wanted to, to kind of pick apart. And this is another one. Um, there was a lot of controversy over this scene because of the, the, not just because of the violence of the rape, but also because of Beth like ending up quote unquote liking it. But like I said, I don't think it's necessarily trying to tell us like, oh, women like being raped. I think it's supposed to demonstrate how codependent and abusive their relationship mm-hmm. is. Totally. What did you, th- like, what do you think of the scene? What are your thoughts? I mean, and that's what I, like I was saying before, it's like the good women of the movie, Jean Chaborn being the quote unquote best woman of the film, right? Like she's the one who's like nice and smiles and is obliging. And like, it's always trying to do stuff for Nick to the point of full on codependency. But like, she gets the worst shit happens to her in the movie. And I just, yeah, it's like she has to be the, the the site of absorption for like, like all of the anger and resentment and like castration shit that Nick has every time he sees Catherine. And then he, it's usually followed by a scene in which he goes and abuses Gene Triplehorn's character. Yeah, you're right. Like every time he has an interaction, a sexually tense interaction with Catherine Trammell before they begin their sexual relationship, right. he goes and takes it out on Beth. Um, yeah, I think to, and this is a, an opinion that I voice a lot, I think to just completely write off rape scenes as a vehicle for male fantasy is misguided i think that the brutality of this scene demonstrates michael douglas's fractured psychological landscape that's going on right now he's extremely angry it also highlights how he could like fly off the handle and shoot innocent civilians at his job he's an angry violent person Mm -hmm. he's not a good person and it also is this way of him like taking back power from Beth because she's his therapist and she has all this power over him and she gets to say whether he's done right. with his therapy or not. And he's just kind of, he has to, in misogynist male fashion, I mean, it's not unrealistic. He has to take that power back from Absolutely. her. I don't think it's in any way like celebrating this rape or anything. Well, and also, this is kind of subtle because straight sex is so boring, so you may or may not have, like, picked up on this fact, but, like, he, in that scene, he is not, he's, yes, it's a rape scene, and also he's topping her, and in every subsequent sex scene he has with Sharon Stone, she's topping him, which, like, I know that doesn't look wholly different in straight sex, but, like, she's definitely topping him, and Gene Triplehorn never does that. No, and actually I did kind of want to talk about this a little bit too, and we can talk about it more when we get to their sex scene, but the way that Catherine Drummell has sex is, like, queer. Yeah. Like, even when she's having sex with a man. Totally. And then when they're lying together after the rape, this is when Beth says that she went to Berkeley with Catherine Drummell. Um, mm-hmm. So we know that they know each other (laughs) yeah all we know thus far is that they know each other we don't know anything else about beth and Catherine. right beth also says to michael douglas you've never been like that before like he's never been that aggressive with her before that passionate you weren't making love like 
Oh, yeah, girl. Definitely not. Definitely Definitely not. not. There's not really a lot of lovemaking in this movie, even though they keep insisting on using that phrase. (laughs) Why do straight people do that? Yeah, I know. I fucking hate that. Cut it out. You're having sex. (laughs) Um, So Nick gets assigned to Catherine, and he's, like, giddy about it. Um, (laughs) There's a car chase scene where he chases... Catherine and her car to this woman Hazel Dobkin's house. Red car, black, red car, white car. Yes, Again. her white car, his red car. Yeah, exactly. And his red car. I mean, I he. It's obvious to me. It's just like a vehicle for his like phallic rage. Yeah. Um. Michael Douglas's leathery, very bright red. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> That's the car. <laughs> um. Hazel Dobkins, we kind of see a little bit of her in this scene. Oh my god, she looks so hot. She looks really hot. She's a hot older I'm woman. loving this mommy girl thing. Yes, yes. Yeah. She's like Catherine's mommy. Oh, so into it. Her and murder mommy. Her murder mommy. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she's also kind of like an older Catherine. Like yeah, no, they look identical. Right, she's in like these white outfits and yeah, she's an, she's an older Catherine. Um... Yeah, she looks like she wants to eat Michael Douglas's character, just like unhinge her jaw and just swallow him. Right. Then what happens where, so Catherine asks Nick what it's like to kill someone. That's when, well, that's when we find out that his wife killed herself. Yes. Because of, and there's like, they don't really hold strong plot wise on this, but because there's like one point where they talk about four different shootings. He says something about having been undercover. So maybe that they were like drug related. But then the article that's like out at Catherine Chamel's house and the one that's cited later is like an accidental shooting of tourists that had come to San Francisco. So like that civilians had been murdered. I think he's shot like multiple people yeah. in different incidents. Right. And she's taunting him because his wife killed herself because he shot all these people and became a, an addict. Yeah. Um, this is, she starts seducing him and then he gets disgusted with her because she mentions his wife and then like, throws her off. This is when Roxy appears and they start making out. Yeah. Together. A little. A little nipple touch. Right. And again, Roxy is in black. Yeah. Black tank top, black, black, black jeans. I think Roxy is like supposed to be quote unquote more butch. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. This is their attempt at a butch strike. Yeah. But it's fully femme for femme. Right. (laughs) (laughs) They also look identical. Yeah. They also look identical. Um, I also think maybe Roxy is supposed to be like a little bit of a doppelganger of Beth. Totally. Um, it's this like brunette with this with Catherine Tremel's blonde. Well, that's what I'm wondering too. I mean, we'll get more into this with June Triplehorn's character later, but like, yeah, like what's up with the lesbian merging thing? Is it like, did someone tell these straight men about the lesbian urge to merge or like become the same person? Because they they nailed that. So Nick is all pissed because Catherine knows all this shit about him. He bursts into Beth's office again, taking out his rage on poor Beth. (laughs) And this is the thing over the entire course of the film. Like, dude, okay, you 
murdered multiple people. It definitely seems like that was a huge mistake that you made. And then you got addicted to drugs and alcohol and your wife couldn't take it and she committed suicide. It seems a little bit like these things are definitely your fault and definitely no one else's fault. And he just like uses it as a reason to feel entitled around like being a giant abusive asshole for the entire movie. That's true. And I, I, I think he's like, that's the point. Like, I think yeah. he's supposed to be an asshole. He's a total douchebag. Yeah, I don't think that it's unintentional on the part of Joe Astaroth. Like, I think he based him on a horrible crooked cop. Yeah, totally. So there's that. Not redeemable in any way. Right. Nick falls asleep in his apartment and he wakes up to Hellraiser. I just wanted to mention that. <laughs> it seems very important. Yeah, I don't know what the choice was with Hellraiser, but that was interesting to me. I mean, that movie is all about vice and and uh, and addiction too. And addiction, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we're getting these kind of you know hints about. You know, this world that we're in in Basic Instinct is like its own kind of hell. Um, oh, this is when Nilsson gets murdered. Nilsson, who's one of the other detectives. And Nilsson is... After, he's, after Michael Douglas's character storms into Beth's office, he also has a confrontation with Nilsson. Right. Where he accuses him of buying his file off or selling the file to Catherine. Right. He's like, his argument is that the file, his, his confidential file about all the shitty things he did went from his therapist to this other cop named Nelson, who then sold it to Catherine Chamel. Right. And then Nelson mysteriously turns up dead in his car. Shot point blank range in the head. Yes. And then Beth defends. Nick. Oh, yeah. Like, apologizes for, like, she's like, well, I'm the one who got you into this. And you're like, no, Did girl. You? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Incorrect, girl. Right. So, I mean, their relationship is super fucked and codependent. Um, and she defends him. She says he was with her, so he couldn't have killed Nelson. Um, Which isn't exactly true. Right. So Nick goes home. Catherine shows up at his apartment in like a riding outfit. <laughs> I don't know what the significance of the equestrian outfit is. I haven't quite unpacked that. There yet. are thigh high suede boots involved. Oh, there are thigh high suede boots. It's like all tan. Very tan. He invites her upstairs and um, he takes out an ice pick. And yeah, starts. it's the first time we see an ice pick outside of the right. first scene. Right, and he starts scene. chipping away at this big block of ice, and then he asks her to do it. He bought it so that she could use it. Right. <laughs> Catherine also gives Nick one of her books that is suspiciously, uh, the plot is suspiciously like that of her parents' death. They died on an airplane crash. Mm -hmm. And the book is about a young boy who stages his parents' death. On an airplane crash. Um, okay, and now we have the club scene. The fucking music. 
So Nick finds Catherine in like a Euro trash club in San Francisco. <laughs> I don't Neon know. Neon lights everywhere. Yes. It looks like a cathedral again. More like gothic cathedral imagery. Yes. And there's all this house music. Roxy and Catherine are canoodling in the men's bathroom. Um, Nick is in a V-neck sweater with no shirt underneath. <laughs> And I just can't imagine how much he's sweating under that sweater. Right. He looks like a wool sweater. What in the fuck? Why is he wearing that? It's so sweaty. And he sees them making out in the bathroom, and Catherine watches him, like, lock eyes with him and slams the door in his face. Right, because there's also, like, this effeminate black gay man in the bathroom with them, and he's feeding them cocaine. Yes, it's, like, a very... Not unlike nights I've had, let's be real. Yeah, I was like, that looks familiar. I would also pick that bathroom door closed, correct? Yeah, exactly. Like, I've definitely been, like, doing coke with my girlfriend with also my fag friend in the bathroom. Totally. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, this is kind of interesting, too, talking about the, the secret gay world. They're, like, shutting him out of yeah. their world. Yeah, yeah. Um, he can't possibly understand what it is that these three people share with each other. Especially not in that normcore sweater. Yeah, he looks like a dad. <laughs> he looks extremely out of place. There was actually criticism of this scene because he looks so out of place, but I think that's the point. I think he's supposed to look out of place. Yeah, he's not supposed to be cool. He's not cool. No, he's old and he's not. This is like a queer club. He's, like, in a queer club. Yeah, totally. And, yeah, they're shutting him out, literally and figuratively, mm. out of their world. Roxy and Catherine are dancing. Catherine starts dancing with Nick. Roxy is pissed and does an epic angry dance. Like, slamming her body back and forth. Yeah, um, very butch in case anyone was wondering <laughs> super butch <laughs> so Nick and Catherine go back to Catherine's house and they have sex for the first time and Catherine ties him to the bed and there's like a fake out where you think she might kill him right. but she doesn't and she's topping him totally she's like riding him she scratches the shit out of his back it's bleeding and afterwards Oh, and apparently this scene took five days to film. <laughs> so Sharon Stone and Michael Douglas had to choreograph it and do this over and over again for five days. Um, I think the, like, the specific pose that they associate in the film with her, you know, the idea is that she's, like, reaching behind her to hypothetically maybe grab an ice pick. But it's also, like, the two bodies are the furthest most point from one another. Like, she's as far away from him physically as possible. It also happens to be the point during sex where she achieves orgasm, which I also find interesting. Yeah, so sure. she's sort of just, like, using... Yeah, I mean, the orgasms are not very convincing <laughs> in the film, but, like... But it just is interesting to me, like, talking about her topping him. Yeah. It's like, she's very far away from him physically. Yeah, yeah, totally. After they have sex, Nick gets up, we see his ass. He goes into the bathroom, and Roxy is in the bathroom <laughs> in her leather jacket. And he... All black. There's an essay uh, in the book Lesbian Configurations by Renee Hoogland. 
The essay is called Basic Instinct, the Lesbian Spectre as Castrating Agent. And basically the conceit of this essay is that this movie is an extended representation of the of men's castration anxiety. And lesbianism is a symbol of that in the film. And the essay uses the, the interesting example because in this scene, Michael Douglas is defeminizing Roxy. You know, kind of the opposite of emasculating someone. He's like right. taking away her womanhood. He calls her Rocky. He says, you know, man to man. <laughs> what do you think? Man to man. Right. And he says, you know, were you watching? And she says, like, she likes me to watch. And in this essay, um, Hoogland basically posits that Roxy is taking the place of the typical male voyeur in that situation. Like typically it is men who are trying to watch two women together. And Roxy is kind of, he emasculates Michael Douglas's character by being the the specter, the one who's watching, which is really interesting. But then Hoogland says something really funny where she's like, but... (laughs) What does she really get to watch? Like, she gets to watch the gorgeous Sharon Stone with, like, some worn-out old detective. (laughs) (laughs) Like, would she really want to watch that? Come on. Yeah. Not super realistic. At the same time, I don't think it has to be realistic. I think it's more about his castration, like, his emasculation, than it is about like an actual lesbian sexual fantasy. Yeah. Or also just like the ways in which the network of women that Catherine has witness each other in different ways. Like Catherine uses her books as the reason when she talks to Michael Douglas's character about it. Like she'll say like, Oh, during the course of, writing my books, I come across interesting characters or whatever. But the truth of the matter is that she, like, is drawn to other women like her and that they have, like, these secrets that they hold together. And you see it in the way that they look at the male characters. And then in the next scene, Catherine also says that Roxy likes to watch and that she's seen her uh, fuck plenty of guys. And this is when Nick says that she's the fuck of the century. I guess uh, Roxy's not taking this too well, huh? She's seen me fuck plenty of guys. Maybe she saw something she's never seen before. She's seen everything before. Honey, I thought I'd seen everything before. Did you really think it was so special? I told her I thought it was the fuck of the century. (laughs) Which, like, really, bro? Like, you guys had sex for ten minutes, and she tied you with a silk scarf to the bed, (laughs) and, like, it's it's just, like, mind-blowing to him. Oh, yeah. He's like, I thought I'd seen everything. I know, like, what really happened? You're like, what, light bondage? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. A woman on top? I I know. What exactly? Right. Did you guys do a bunch of anal play that I missed in the movie? Like, what (laughs) happened? And she also, he also says that he's in love with her, but that he'll nail her anyway. Yes. Yeah. And then it's like, you can put that in your book. (laughs) 
and then, then he, and then he walks off the beach, but it is unclear where he is walking to. I love that part. Like just, I'm like, where are you going? Just into nothingness. <laughs> you know, just to skip over. Like he has some boring scene with Moran or whatever. I think. Oh, where he's like, oh, you fucked her. Oh, oh yeah. you weren't supposed to do that. And Cow- they like, go to a cowboy bar. This weird cowboy bar in yeah. San Francisco. Yeah. I think Verhoeven is just like obsessed with Americana and it manifests in like really weird ways. Yeah, I agree. I was like, this is a weird juxtaposition of cowboy culture, Americana stuff with like San Francisco. I don't yeah, San exactly. Francisco hipstery stuff. And, yeah. and it was weird. Yeah. Um, and then Roxy has a car chase with Nick. And she gets run off the bridge. No, not the bridge. Or just run off the side of the road. Yeah, there's like some type of, I don't know, like construction or something that she falls down with the car. But anyway, the car like falls down and flips over and stuff. And he goes down. And she's dead. Right. And for a moment, I think you're supposed to think that it might be Catherine because of the hair. And then he turns her over and it's Roxy. Yes. And... Then we also find out through her death, because her juvenile records are released, that Roxy murdered her younger brothers. So with a razor blade to the neck and they like show these photos. Yeah. Yeah. It's really serious. Yeah. So So again, murdering men. Right. I mean, boys in that case, they were definitely boys. Yes. Murdered young boys. But Nick is also a murderer. And we're kind of seeing that Catherine likes to be around murderers and Nick goes to Catherine's house and she's devastated about Roxy. Do you feel like she's really devastated? I mean, you did point out at the time you're, you're absolutely right. That it is the only, it is the first scene that we see her cry. She does cry later in the film, but like for the first half of the movie, we see like, her totally steely and she is like actually crying whether that's for nick's benefit or not who could say yeah and then she's like make love to me and they have sex again after they have sex this is when Catherine says i don't have luck with women she's because she's talking about roxy and how roxy really loved her oh yeah roxy was really jealous of her and nick she's like kind of pumping his ego she says, I don't have luck with women. And this is when she talks about the incident she had in college where she slept with a girl and the girl started to copy her and like take on her identity and became obsessed and fixated with her. Dyed her hair blonde, mm-hmm. styled her clothes like her. And she says her name was Lisa Oberon. Yeah. And, Oberon. Yep. Right. And Nick goes to investigate that. He sees there's no, there was no lease over in at Berkeley. He goes to Catherine's house again. She's with Hazel Dobkins. Looking hot as ever. Yeah. And at this point, have we found out that Hazel Dobkins is also a murderer? I think we have. I think we have. Yeah, so Hazel Dobkins is also a murderer. Oh, right, because the cowboy cop keeps being like, we know Hazel did it. Yeah. We know young Roxy did it. Right, right. So Hazel is also a mommy murderer, and she killed her entire family. (laughs) Oh, right. She killed her husband. Yeah, she killed both of her children and her husband. Yes. And in both... To live her dyke truth. Right, and in both... (laughs) Yes, because in both deaths... That is, like, a definite theme throughout the film, but particularly with the women murderers. Like, not so much... With Nick, the inference is that he was an addict and he was, like, really strung out on coke, right? But with the female murderers, in each case, they make a point to say, 
when we asked her why she did it, she said, I don't know, or like, just because or whatever. So there's like this, like, they have like a murder club. Yeah. And like, whatever. (laughs) The three of them. Yeah. Um, so, and Hazel calls him shooter and Nick calls out Catherine saying like, there was no Lisa Oberon. And she says, what are you thought? Like stalking me? Like her name was Hoberman. And then Nick goes back to the police station and they look up Lisa Hoberman and we find out that Lisa Hoberman is actually Beth. Jean Triplehorn's character. Yeah, like a, a married name. Yeah. That, married that, name, that, legal name. Thing. Yeah. Um, and Nick confronts her and she's like, how can I tell you? It's the only time I've ever been with a woman. And we're like, yeah, sure, girl. <laughs> I was just a kid. I was experimenting. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And she says that the story is actually the opposite, that they slept together and Catherine started to imitate her and take on her personality. And she says the iconic line, she's evil. She's brilliant. (laughs) She's evil. She's brilliant. I really want someone to yell that about me one yeah, day. One day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if people maybe have, it's if they haven't already. <laughs> it's true. It's probably happened. <laughs> one would hope. And then there's another scene with the cowboy cop and who's his like partner and him down by the docks, which is another like throwback to body heat where men have these conversations about how awful women are yeah, at yeah. some type of peer, which I don't really know what that's supposed to be. Right. And but... Gus is like, you got Tweety Bird around your head. <laughs> He's like trying to say that Michael Douglas is like dickmatized by Catherine. Totally dickmatized. Which he is. Yeah. He's like totally losing it at this point. Yeah. He's like going into rage fits around with everyone that he works with, like trying to make sense of this woman and like, trying to hold on to the belief that she's not a murderer. Yeah, he is more inclined to believe that this therapist who he has known a significantly longer amount of time, who has never done anything but try to be nice to him in the most codependent way possible, that she could actually be the murderer and not a woman who's like, I really love murder. (laughs) (laughs) Like as murderer friends. As murderer friends talks about murder constantly seems really into murder (laughs) could not be her yeah exactly yeah so he's like totally losing his mind oh he says to Catherine he goes to to her house again and he's like you know we can fuck like minx raise rugrats and live happily ever after Um, the literal straight nightmare and she looks horrified yeah Nick finds out by doing some investigation at the hospital that Beth's husband used to work at, that Beth's husband was shot dead. So this sort of like confirms his suspicion that Beth might be the murderer. Yeah. And then he goes to speak to an officer who worked the case in the husband's murder and the cop. Well, number one, the cop refers to San Francisco as Frisco, Frisco, which I have never heard before and <laughs> don't believe is actually an abbreviation for San Francisco. Um, and then he like interrogates Nick back, right? Like he's like, 
that you're the second cop to come down here in the last year or so to ask me this question, like, what's going on? Why are people asking about this case? And then come to find out that it was Nelson, who was the one who came down to ask about the case, the cop that was murdered previously. Nick goes to Catherine's house. She tries to break up with him because she says her book is done, so she doesn't need him anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He's pissed. Hazel is there. They look like they've been fucking. Yeah, Hazel is pleased as fucking pun. (laughs) She taunting Nick with her smile. Soaking wet from (laughs) the recent fucking and then also watching a man be castrated. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Nick meets up with, he's all sad. He meets up with Moran. (laughs) um, And Moran says he found Catherine Tremel's old roommate. But before they can go investigate that... He is murdered by someone with an ice pick, right? Yeah. He goes to an apartment building. Yeah. um, And he's, like, riding the elevator. And halfway up the elevator, Nick realizes that it's probably a trap. Right. He walks out of the elevator. Marin walks out of the elevator and gets stabbed with an ice pick by someone wearing an SFPD like poncho and wearing a blonde wig. Right. Um, Nick gets in a standoff with Beth. Beth, he's holding his gun up, pointing it at her. Beth reaches into her pocket for something. Nick, I guess, assumes it's a gun and he shoots Beth dead. And he goes up. Man is really bad at shooting. Yeah, he's really bad. He could have just shot her in the leg. Right. There was literally no reason to shoot her. Right. And she's completely dead. (laughs) (laughs) And he looks in her pocket and all that there is are her keys with her Bart Simpson keychain. What the hell do we make of the Bart Simpson keychain? I think it's just more Americana. I think it's like, you know, Verhoeven being a Dutch weirdo and being like, <laughs> I love America. Yeah. America is so cool. Bart Simpson. Oh, and, cowboys. Right. And Beth's last words are, I love you to him. Which like, why? Girl, I know. What a waste. Why do you love him? Um, and they buried her with an unread copy of Codependent No More. <laughs> that was the end of it. Like, what the fuck? Like, get help. <laughs> um, they find that Beth had a bunch of suspicious shit on her, like a blonde wig and the SF poncho. Yeah, there's like a million clues. They go mm-hmm. to Beth's apartment and mm-hmm. there's like a bajillion clues that directly point. That, like, they find a gun in her apartment. They find like newspaper clippings and pictures of find a fucking picture of Catherine Chamel and and her at their graduation wearing their fucking like graduation outfits. Right. Like, There's some real deep dyke drama going on here. Yeah. I said at one point I was like <laughs> Nick is not prepared for this dyke drama. No, like, he, doesn't understand. Way, he doesn't understand how psychopathic this is. Like <laughs> he's in way over his head here. <laughs> Um, I can't talk about it. It's too deep, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Nick, when she goes, she's evil. She's brilliant. <laughs> like, I love her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, maybe have said that about a few of my exes. Right, exactly. It's a pretty classic yeah. lesbian ex statement. Right. She's evil. She's brilliant. Nick goes back to his apartment. Catherine Tramell is there crying. They fuck again. Catherine tops him again. And we have two fake outs where we think, again, she's going to stop him with the ice pick. She doesn't. Then when he talks about, oh, we're going to fuck like minx. He does that line again where he's like, fuck like minx and get, make some rugrats. 
and she looks like death warmed over <laughs> like uh-huh. she looks like I don't want regrets like she looks crazed and you think she's reaching for an ice pick and then I think the thing that saves him is he says well like then we'll skip the rugrats and it's another fake out and you know she just rolls over and like embraces him uh-huh. and then the last shot of the movie is the ice pick under the bed uh-huh. so it was her the whole time and she's just this mastermind do you think it was her the whole time or do you think Beth is also a murderer no, I think it was her the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think Beth had anything to do with it. Yeah. I think Beth has some weird, repressed, like, homophobic Ooh, shit going on. That's like, the other thing we found out is that Beth had, like, a side chick. Right, when she, when she was married. Yeah, yeah, when she was married, yeah. So I think Beth was just repressed. She's just a closet case. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, do you have any, like, final thoughts? We've gone over the whole movie. I mean, I recall... I haven't been able to find anything on this yet, but I do recall reading at some point that perhaps there were some questions as to whether the film was going to end that way, whether it was just going to pan down. Because it pans down, it could just pan down to the end of the bed and then go black, but it pans down to the ice pick. And right, that still doesn't tell us exactly what happened, but it certainly implies that Catherine murdered at least a couple of people in the movie. Maybe not all the people in the movie, but most of them. I mean, I'm also just as afraid of compulsory heterosexuality as Catherine Trammell is in this film. Yeah, like, that's real. Like, that reaction was real. (laughs) There are some lesbian theorists that feel like the omission of, like, actual lesbian sexuality is a way to highlight and center the heterosexual relationship in the film. But I actually feel like it's more empowering to not show it, like you were saying. I just don't know. Like, what would that scene look like in this movie? Like, I'm... Like, let's see if we can even think it through. Like, I actually can't even imagine what I would want that scene to Well, what would the context be? Because everything is through Nick's POV. Right. There is not one scene that I can think of right now that doesn't have him in it, except for the beginning scene. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it might underscore Catherine as a top throughout, the, like, all, throughout with all sexual partners, right? Like, I guess there could be a scene with her, like, topping Roxy. I mean, Roxy does do things out of love for Catherine in the film, and so one could infer from that that it's sort of like it's very DSC at times yeah do you think that Catherine put Roxy up to killing Nick or do you think Roxy did that on her own hard to say I don't think it could go either way yeah. honestly I think Catherine put her up to it I think I think it's more likely that Catherine I think you're right I think it's more likely that Catherine put her up to it because I don't buy I don't buy Nick's theory that the fuck of the century was that upsetting for Roxy to watch. Like I don't think I don't buy Roxy gave a shit. Yeah, like, I don't think I think Catherine does this all the time. Right. Like, and I there think, cannot have been anything that exciting yeah, about that I sex think, scene. Right. I think that Nick is just another Johnny Boz. Uh-huh. Like I think she just does this. This is her thing. She likes to have these like really deep relationships with women. And she likes to toy with men and destroy them. Yeah. It does seem very likely that, yeah, he la- he left and Catherine was like, go fuck with him. 
And then she unintentionally got in a car accident and died. And that was not right. And so, and so then it would also make sense that she would be really upset after that because she'd be like, Oh fuck. I sent my girlfriend to go fuck with this dumbass, And then she died. That sucks. Right. Yeah. I mean, I have always thought Paul Verhoeven captures like women. Well, personally, I enjoy it. I don't know. I know that it's a controversial statement, but no, I enjoy it too. I actually, like I was saying, like, I think that there's a certain amount of reverence that he treats the relationships with. I think that they are like deeper than the heterosexual relationships in some way. Like they're also secretive and not shown because I think maybe they know that they can't show it. Yeah, they can't do it, right? They have no idea how to do that. Yeah, I agree. I am interested to see his upcoming movie about a lesbian nun. Oh my god, I'm so excited. I'm really excited. Well, we've fully dissected Basic Instinct. Oh my gosh, love it. Sure, there could be a whole college seminar about this movie, honestly. I would go back to college for that. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Girls, Guts, and Jalo. Thank you, Sarah, for doing this episode with me. My extreme pleasure. Where can we find you on social media? Um, I am on Instagram at Jersey Trash Femme. And you can find me at Girls, Guts, and Jalo on Instagram and Twitter. You can also follow my personal account on Instagram at fatgoth, F-A-T-G-A-W-T-H. And you can send me an email at girlsgutsandjalo at gmail.com. Watch out for a new episode every Friday. And we'll play us out with some music here from Basic Instinct, some of the famous score. Thank you for listening. 